0: All right, good morning. Um, So that was actually made by our very own Alex and Alex Palmer uh, last year, uh, in conjunction with Resonate for our our one-year anniversary and then also um, the floods that happened uh, in Houston last year. Uh, And Alex actually pointed this out, uh, and it blew my mind. Uh, But just last year around the time Houston was flooded and so Resonate uh, we have, the Palmers are from there. We have some people in our community that are from there. And so we decided, uh, what can we do? Uh, this is at the same time that, very famously, uh, the Joel Osteens of the world did not even open up their doors for people to come in to the churches that were just lying there. Um, so we're like, as a small community, what can we do to open our doors? And we decided we're going to give 100% of whatever comes in this week. That means scheduled giving, that means stuff that people put in the offering basket, that means stuff that people choose to Venmo us, all of that kind of stuff we're going to put and we're going to give directly to the Houston Food Bank uh, as a sign to just say like this is what Christianity at its best looks like uh, when we become the hands and the feet and then a year later here we find ourselves again and that full passage in Isaiah at the end of this, uh, it reads like this, it goes uh, from the beginning, There, Sean if we have that slide it says, "Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And you, when you pass through the rivers, they will not sleep over er, sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God." One year later, that same passage speaks true. Uh, the stuff that we've gone through this week uh, has been crazy. It's been traumatizing. Uh, the folks that we know uh, that come here that are from Pepperdine aren't here for a reason. They were like literally uh, just sort of ganged up and put into a, a, a giant gym, and the fires were all around them. There's, there's trauma that's happening in our lives, and on top of that, right in our backyards, poor Thousand Oaks has just been pummeled this week uh, with the shootings that happened at the Borderline um, Club. Uh, And so what I want to do is you can't just lump all this stuff into one and we say one fancy cool prayer and then everything is fine. What we really need to do, because if we're not doing it here, where else are we going to do it? Is we need to take time and space uh, and we're going to do a couple things. We're going to grieve and then we're going to hope and then we're going to pray and then we're going to act. So we're going to grieve, we're going to hope, we're going to pray and we're going to act. So, what I invite you to do, we're going to do this uh, as a personal reflection, but remember as you bow your head, you are still in here with all these people. We're doing this together. So, we just bow our heads. John's going to play a little bit. Um, And we're going to separate these two things that have happened. So, first we're going to pray for the tragedy of Borderline, and then I'm going to leave space for that grieving, that hoping, that prayer, uh, and then that action. And then we're going to talk about the fires. Um, and we're going to leave space for all those things once more. Um, this is something that we rarely do in church. So if it's your first time, um, please don't feel like we're, we're pulling you into anything weird and mystic and crazy. Uh, it's simply just if you'd like to bow your head in solidarity, that would be awesome. Um, but for those of us who have chosen the Christian path and believe in the healing powers of Jesus Christ, we're going to kind of lean into that this morning uh, in a deeper way um, than sometimes we even we even think to. So let' uh, let 's all bow our heads and i 'll just start with a little prayer. Lord, for the students that were at the borderline uh, shooting for the people that some of them had, had already survived one mass shooting in Las Vegas and were there and lost their lives here for the hurt. That our country experiences over violence that is not ordained by you For the fact that this is over 300 times that this has happened this year over 300 mass shootings in our country Lord have mercy so we grieve Lord and we say this isn't right Claim that we hate this. And so we just take a minute and we grieve. And then, Lord, as you are a God that redeems and reconciles, and that's your job description. We place hope in this room. Uh, We place hope for the families and the people and the victims and everyone involved. We place hope for the shooter. That through you, this can be redeemed and that it doesn't stay bad, it doesn't stay hurtful, it doesn't stay fearful, but we can move this to hope because we believe in what you can do. So for that, we leave space for hope. to prayer, we move to conversation, and we recognize that conversation is a two-way street and that sometimes there are times we need to speak, and that sometimes there are times we need to listen. And so whichever way moves the people that are in this room, Lord, would you either let them speak or let them listen as we leave space? Out, we have to stand against violence in any kind of way, shape, or form. And that means getting involved in ways that are controversial, in ways that might hurt. But give us extreme bravery to stand up to these terrible things. Because our grief, our hope, our prayer is the simply do not cut it, you call us to more than that. So let us be people that act. And Lord, for the fires, for what's going on in our backyard, and literally the backyards of the people that are just over the hill from us, God, the fear, the, the hurt, even that some in this room are experiencing right now, would you bring peace? So Lord, once again, say this is not right and we grieve so we leave space for grief we go through the anger and the hurt and the turmoil of all of that fear and all of that just, ugh, why is this going on? We recognize that in almost in the most literal way for hope to happen is going to be rebuilding. This is going to be a period of rebuilding for our entire county, our entire city, our entire state. And so I pray uh, just, just for creative, amazing ways to rebuild so we leave space for hope. As we pray, I want to combine the prayer and action because that's kind of what prayer really is at its best. So I pray that our actions would be our prayers. And as we give this morning, and we once again give 100% of what we take in uh, to helping the first responders, the firefighters, and the people that need to rebuild our homes, let our our prayers speak in that way. Let's put our money where our mouth is, so to speak. guys for doing that. If that was, yeah, uncomfortable for anyone or just too funky, I'd love to have coffee with you. We can talk through what the heck just happened there. <laughs> but I just think it's so important that we leave uh, serious space, because um, if we're not doing that here, I mean, I just, I don't really see the point in, in church in general. So um, what I want to talk about today is this idea uh, of of being, of being sent, of having action. Uh, you see on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and any social media that you're on, or maybe even the news, there's always that line. It's my thoughts and prayers are with. Um, but here's the thing. That, that can become a glib statement, and it can also become a hurtful statement to people that are like, yeah, you've just been saying that, uh, and nothing's happening. So what I want to actually talk about is that prayer really is enough if... We truly understand what prayer is and what it guides us to do. And on top of that, as we have folks that have driven down to Mexico and have literally been sent to go and build a home, to go and evangelize, to go be there among the people, what does that mean to prayerfully be sent? And then there's this even uglier word right now in our political sphere, uh, this to evangelize, right? The evangelical holds all sorts of strange political uh, double entendre right now, but it's at, at the end of the day, to evangelize and to be sent, both of those things are super amazing and we should embrace them. It's just that we need to clarify what that means. So I want to go through three different topics this morning that I think in 2018 and 2019 and beyond, what I think evangelism looks like, what I think prayer looks like, uh, and how I think that leads us to action. So the three different things we're going to be talking about are grace, thanks, and mercy. And here's what I really want to get at mercy always begets grace where there's mercy there is room for grace and so that's what we're going to be talking through and going with and forgive me but i have to pray and get bearings once more so if you guys could bow your heads we're going to pray and then we're going to get into what we're talking about this morning lord thanks again um for your healing power for just what we're able to experience when we truly come to you with this stuff uh And I pray that as we talk about the topic of evangelism, of grace, of mercy, uh, you be with us. Amen. All right. So uh, evangelism. If you ever walk into a church, um, stick around for long enough, you're going to hear a couple Christianese buzzwords. And those are going to be missions. So missions would be a couple of things. It would be like if we go on mission trips, like we have a group right now doing, it could be just in our local community. Like what are we doing to be on mission in the world? But the problem with the word mission is that it implies like that there's some sort of like, there's a slight sort of colonization or militant attitude towards it, right? So if we're on mission, then it seems like we're gonna be bulldozing right on through. But that's not actually the biblical call to mission. The biblical call to mission is to be carriers of the good news. And this is where we get to this thing, evangelism. Evangelism, where the original term came from, it's to spread the gospel. And the gospel was a military term. So in Jesus' day, in the early followers of Christ, if you had a gospel, that meant a good news. But the good news was the empire would send out a gospel proclaiming that another territory had been conquered and added to the Roman Empire, praise Caesar. So what that meant is that they had gone in and they had colonized and they had destroyed and they had gone to war with another territory and they won and they increased the size of the Roman Empire. So that was good news to them. That was good news to the empire, right? But what the Christians did, the early Christians, is they they co-opted that word. They, they reframed that word. And what Jesus did, it's one of his first lines, is behold the good news. Like, I'm here to proclaim the gospel, which in that day the people would have been like, you're here to proclaim what? Like, what are you talking about, man? But that meant there is something expanding, there are new things being added, and We should celebrate that. And so, what the Christians saw was that no, it's not through the military, it's not through like armies, it's not through war that we're going to celebrate. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus is actually the good news. And through Jesus, new creation is happening and new lives are being shaped and new lives are being formed. So, now that's the gospel. So, when we evangelize, we are taking good news with us, the good news of Jesus, and we're proclaiming it. And what that basically means is we're here to be carriers of good news. We're here to hold on to that. And wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves, and oftentimes that could be in very uncomfortable situations, just like the week that we found ourselves in now, but we're actually called to carry good news through that, to carry good news. And we need that more than ever in this crazy time. We need more of that good news, more of carrying that beauty into the world. And more than anything, we need more grace, grace, grace. And grace is an overused word. It's just something that we use a lot as Christians, but grace, in in the New Testament, in the Greek, grace and thanks mean the same thing. And more than that, as I said, redemption is God's uh, job description. He's got more than one job. Grace is really the ultimate job description of God. Grace and thanks being the same thing, then, has to move us to kind of uh, new understandings of what it means to actually take good news and bring grace that actually means that we're bringing good news and we're bringing gratitude that that we could bring Jesus into the world so that when people encounter that it's not that we have to say okay we're going to sell you on Jesus because this this and this no we're going to tell you about Jesus because once you know about Jesus right where you are is going to be enough that grace and thanks comes out and gratitude leads you to actual to actually being content, to actually saying like, oh my gosh, yeah, Jesus loves me the way I am right here, right now. That's incredible news. The whole reason this evangelism thing got out of control is because we somehow got into the mind frame or whatever that we need to sell Jesus, that it's a commodity to be sold. And basically that means we had to go in and convince people of five different ways Jesus would make their life better. But... Jesus never really directly claims he's going to make your life better. All he claims is that he's going to make your life complete. (laughs) So that means right where you are, you could be in a space where he could go, no, 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 wait, right where you are, I can complete you right here. That's the idea. But we got into this idea that we had to sell people that story. When I was uh, right out of high school, I took a job in a music store, Uh, because I had a friend who owned the music store. He was a lot older than me, it's weird to call him a friend. But yeah, uh, Alan, he's a super intimidating like salesperson, business guy, uh, but he sold me musical instruments all through growing up. And so after I got out of high school, he's like, hey, if you want a summer job, uh, come sell musical instruments with me. So I came, and he's very scary, but he's also like the Michael Jordan of salespeople. Like, if he had a kid with a little guitar, he would be able to somehow go up to that child, convince the child to then pester their parents to then buy the guitar, and he would do this all day long. If someone couldn't close a sale, Alan would simply walk on the floor, and he'd be like, hey, would you like to take that home with you today? And for some weird, unearthly reason, they would go, yes, in fact, I do want to spend thousands of dollars on a stringed instrument that's no longer be popular in 2018. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So he was so good at this, and, and I asked him one time, I was like, I don't understand how you can just, you're not like, you're not, you're not cheese ball, you're not like being a really slimy guy, and yet this is happening for you a lot more than it seems to be happening for other people. How do you convince people to actually buy into something? And what he said, uh, which is very sneaky, and he, it turns out he was being very sneaky and very slimy, uh, but he said, what you need to do is you need to make something intangible. Because if it's intangible, then people will want to buy into it, right? And if you think about that in terms of every single advertisement you see, advertisement wins when it presents you with something that looks intangible, but it's not intangible. You could totally get that credit card out and go into massive amounts of debt to get it, right? But it makes it look like, oh, only a certain select few will have this, and that makes it intangible, and that makes people want to get it, right? This is why playing hard to get works so well, because you're like, wait, 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 what? I can't actually actually control the situation, that's out of my control, I want it badly now more than ever, right? And ads are telling us this everywhere. If you're driving down the road, even to get to church this morning, I guarantee you passed at least five or six advertisements. If you flip open your phone for almost anything now, there's an advertisement. If you want to watch a news story on your phone, go to any kind of news site, Click on it, you're gonna watch an ad for something before you actually get to the news. If you wanna learn how to make, say, a new pasta on YouTube, which I tried to do this week, I had to suffer through an ad for a a Toyota Tundra before I could actually get to my delicious pasta. You're always going to encounter something, and it's a direct barrage, 24-7, kind of just telling you, hey, all of this is intangible. And as much as that awesome pasta you're about to make is going to satisfy you, this could satisfy you more. There's always more, you can always have more. And that same idea of we can always have more or we should always be paying attention, that's actually a beautiful thing. You are hardwired to want more. That's just the way that we were made. We are, we are, just, we are absolutely at our base level hardwired to go, I want to accomplish more, I want to increase the number of things I have, and I want to see more and I want to experience more. And actually that's gorgeous and God can use that because if we're people that want to experience more and want to actually get more out of life, then that's a huge thing. So in a way, FOMO is beautiful. <laughs> right? This fear of missing out, this, this idea that, oh, if I'm not there, it's going to hurt me, that's actually what drives humanity forward. Because then we go, okay, I do need to get my stuff together and I need to actually work at this. And then that stuff begins to fall in place. But here's the thing. That same built-in reaction that we're hardwired for is the same thing that someone could take advantage of and prove to you that you need something that you really do not need. This is true, I looked this up. In every single Hummer commercial, which they're not popular right now, but I was trying to look at like the most big, like, garish thing I could think of. In every single Hummer commercial, there is only one male driver in every single commercial that is featured. So what it's telling you is buy a Hummer for yourself. (laughs) A Hummer is 6,000 pounds. 6,000 pounds. And in every single advertisement, it said you should have this, but you should have this just for yourself, right? It's not like a whole family or you're not carpooling in it. It's just like one driver go forward. That's the crazy part. It's selling you an idea that individually you need to accumulate more and you need, you're missing out on something. The Christian tradition, or the religious tradition in general, really sells you a totally different bill of goods. It says that the community needs more, that this whole group needs more. Most of the promises you see in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament are for huge groups of people And oftentimes we just kind of distill them down to that's just for me. That's my verse or that's my thing. But the covenants God makes, he makes with an entire nation in the Old Testament, right? And then the promises Jesus says later on, he's even inviting another nation in. He's inviting all nations in. This becomes way bigger. It's for the greater good, not just the individualistic thing. There's only one thing that can pull us out of that consumerist idea outside of that individualistic idea, and it's gratitude and it's thanks, and that means grace. That means looking around and saying, everything I have right now, the relationships I have right now, where I'm at, that is enough. When God creates all of creation, the poetic six days in the beginning of Genesis, at the end he looks around and he says, oh, this is good. In a way, he's just thanking. He's thanking himself, but he's thanking. He's going, this is good. I'm going to proclaim that it's good. It's enough. And then he rests because he knows this is enough. But we're not good at that. We're not good at resting, and we're not good at proclaiming that right what we have is actually enough. And here's the thing. Even though it's a, like this, this thankfulness and this gratitude thing is quickly disappearing in our American culture, we are literally the only country... That is devoted an entire day to thankfulness, <laughs> and it's coming up in two weeks. And the cruel trick is, we have elections, and then we have a Thanksgiving table with all of our relatives that think nowhere near like us, and those are put two weeks apart. It's America's cruel trick to ourselves. But we have a full day that we have dedicated to look. It's beautiful. Think about this idea. It didn't. But by the way, that's a lot of religious history. It didn't start out that great. But let's take it back, right? The idea of Thanksgiving is reconciling. It's sitting with people that we may have had differences from, but it's sitting around a table, and the whole table is set for grace. The whole table is set for thankfulness, for grace, and for mercy. How is it that a table that is set for grace can become ground zero for one of the most famous family arguments that you've ever had (laughs) for conflict? How is it that that table that's actually set up to actually interact with people and be thankful for where we're at and be thankful for... God forbid, the person that's across from you, become such a conflicted place. And I think I can help a little bit with this, and this all comes that idea of grace and gratitude. We need to demythalize something. There is this sneaky myth, and I think it's just because of the movies we watch, or my wife loves Hallmark movies, and it's just this is the Hallmark narrative, that when you sit down at a table with the family that you grew up with and you've gone out into the world with, or the family that you raised and they've gone out into the world with, that when we all come back together, we should all think and have the same ideas. That's simply never going to happen. No good group of people, not even a family, but a whole just organization or group of people, thinks the same way. We need differences, we need friction, we need different ideas, but somehow, even at a whole day devoted to finally, you know, coming back with the people that you love and experiencing a meal together around a table, which has all sorts of spiritual aspects to it that we can get into later, uh, coming around that, it, we believe that this is our chance to assert our beliefs and hopefully win the argument over everyone else. And if you've never been there, I'm sorry, my family's very weird. But anyway, when we sit at that table, something inevitably comes up, and then we end up spiraling into some sort of strangeness. But here's the thing we're so polarized right now that we think that the only way forward is to convince other people of our beliefs, to say that we're the right ones, they're the wrong ones. And if they'd only come on my side, then I would actually, the, the world would be a better place. I spent a, a really weird week this week. I, I went, my sister is the. Uh, the, I don't even know what her title is. She's like the number two person for Gavin Newsom. Um, and so she invited us to the rally when he won. And so I'm sitting there with a, a very Democratic room. And people are just shouting. And it's like a war cry when this dude with very sparkly teeth comes on stage uh, and announces that he's going to win. There's this uproar. There's this huge hurrah. And I had this weird moment where I'm sitting in there. And I'm looking around. And I'm going, everyone in here is convinced that anyone outside this room or anyone celebrating in a different context or grieving in a different context is wrong. And on the other side, that would be happening, too, if it had gone that way. We're in these, like, silos. And then I went to go sit uh, with with Richard Rohr, who's, like, my favorite uh, author and thinker and theologian. I got invited with a group of pastors to go down there and just be there for two or three days uh, and just hang out. And the more I was there, I was like, I'm surrounded with a whole lot of people that think exactly like I do. Uh, mostly because we read a lot of Richard Rohr. But I'm I'm looking around the room going, like, everyone here believes because they're in this room, they're right, and that other people might be wrong. And a huge, profound thing that's happened in our country, and it's happening globally, is that we have forgotten the fact that we need each other, that we need each other. We need people that think differently than we do, because if we don't, it's all going to spiral downwards. Here's the weird part. On both sides, we both believe that the whole thing is going to hell in a handbasket, right? We agree on something, and we need each other to actually balance that out. It cannot work with the pendulum just swinging to one side or the other. It has to come together. We have to realize that we actually do need each other. And that this is a Venn diagram, not just two bubbles over here. And that's hopefully what Thanksgiving is supposed to be all about. It's supposed to be about a moment where you can come in and actually have conversations. And I mean conversations, not debates, not arguments, but conversations about stuff that matters, and it won't culminate in someone throwing their dinner plate down and leaving the room. That's the whole thing. Someone had a ring event. Um, When we believe that were just two separate things, and I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, I'm a, a liberal, you're a conservative, or I'm a blank, just fill in a label. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a plumber, you're a lawyer. I'm a, whatever it is, whatever the labels that we truly begin to think are our identities take hold, then we stop viewing people as people. The number one thing that happened in Hitler's time, he was able to, to convince people, because he labeled them just the Jews, They refer to them just as the Jews. And in that way, he takes away their humanity, and he takes away their names. Because if we knew the names of those people, we'd actually be forced to reckon with the fact that they're actually human and that something needs to happen and that we cannot hurt them. But when you can label something and just give it a label and not a name, then you can do whatever you want to it, because it dehumanizes it. Right? It takes away its human form and replaces it with a label. There's a perfect story that covers the first ever moment of Jesus' evangelism to a new separate group of people and labels. It's a little bit lengthy, but we're going to read it through. Uh, It's the story of Legion. There's demon possession in this, pigs. It's going to be great. Here we go. Um, Start out at the top. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The next one, Sean. Thank you. Uh, Jesus restores a demon-possessed man. So this is out of Mark, and a little context for you. Mark is the very first gospel that we believe that was written down, um, and it's, it's, it's actually the most political gospel that was written down. Uh, there's a great book called Binding the Strongman that I highly recommend reading. It's very long, and, and parts of it are very dull, but it it's actually puts a really good picture of why this is a huge political book. Uh, so it says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, this is the biggest deal that we need to think about. There's this, there's this lake, the Sea of Galilee, right? that sits in the middle, and on one side, you have the Jewish people, and on the other side, you have these people called Gentiles, which means they could have come from anywhere else, but they are not a part of the Jewish people. And so in a very literal sense, Jesus is now crossing over a body of water, which represents chaos and hecticness, to get to the other side to, for the first time, sort of try these ideas and this way of life out and proclaim this gospel, evangelize, to these people that are on the other side of the lake, right? That's our way of saying it, on the other side of the tracks. Like they are over there and we are over here and the, never shall the two meet. So they're going on a boat and they're going to the other side. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs uh, and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So, real fast here, if you are a disciple of Jesus and he's already convinced you to go in a boat, so remember, what Jesus is doing on the other side of the lake is actually very successful. He, he, it's like a country music star that's really good in country, and then they're like, you know what I want to do? Hip-hop. And they're like, why would you ever want to do that? He's, he's doing really well over here, but he knows this group needs this, and I need to get over there. So the, the, that's enough for the disciples to like completely like be mind-blown. But then, the minute you get off the boat and there's this crazy dude from a tomb running down and screaming at Jesus, you're going, we made the wrong choice. Like, <laughs> we should have stayed on the other side of this lake. Uh, so, He's, he's strong enough to break chains. He often slashes himself with stones, and those are very important things to hold on to as we go through this story. Uh, so next slide, please. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? Now, this is the most important part of this entire passage. You have an extremely unstable, demon-possessed individual in front of you, and here's the thing. What would you call that man if you saw him running and screaming, kneeling at the feet of Jesus, all bloodied up, chains broken? I mean, I don't know what you would call him, but if I saw that and this thing was going on in front of me, I would go, that's a madman. That's a crazy person. I would not ask their name. Right? But Jesus speaks directly to the impure stuff going on, and he says, what's your name? And that presents an incredible amount of both care and once he knows the name, and this is an important thing, once we can actually view someone as an individual rather than a label, rather than this crazy person or this demon-possessed person that's running over, then we have a chance to actually interact in a real human way. So he says, "What's your name?" And it says, uh, "My name is Legion." He replied, "For we are many." And we beg Jesus again, and they beg Jesus again, uh, not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding the nearby hillside. So here's a little fun like historical tidbit for you. that It, it worked its way in the story somehow, but I just think it's fascinating. Basically, a, a legion was a group of Roman soldiers. That was the name of a group of Roman soldiers that likely would have taken over this area. So this demon is calling himself a group of Roman soldiers. And then it asks to get thrown into a large herd of pigs, which there were symbol, symbols for the Roman Empire. And one was an eagle that would proclaim, like, here we are. This is Caesar's. And then one of the military symbols that would have been on their shields was a boar or a pig. So all of a sudden, this demon is asking, hey, we're naming ourselves as a Roman legion, and we want to get thrown into the boars." This would make the townspeople very nervous, because what's happening here is extremely political. Anyway, that's just a bonus. Um, so beg Jesus again and again, not to send them out of the area, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons beg Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the Imperial spirits came out and went into the pigs in the herd, and about 2,000 in number rushed and steeped the bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off, very smart, and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, this is very important, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, if you were this demon possessed man, you did not end up in the tombs chained and beating yourself by accident. This is a person that would have lived among the townspeople in that town. And you have to remember, in this ancient society, a town was much different than like the city of Santa Monica. We can go weeks without even saying hi to our neighbor, right? But in this society, everyone in town played a role, and you would interact with people on a daily basis simply to survive. So this man became too troublesome. If he was bound up, that means, okay, first, first things first, let's just tie him up. Maybe if we can tie him up and put him in a corner, we can, we can just go about our day and go about our, our daily routine and our life, and we don't have to think about him. And then the fact that he's beaten and he's cutting himself with stones, that's probably a reaction to what they were doing to him as he was chained. He's carrying on that learned behavior and going, I'll continue to beat myself up out here. And finally, he becomes such a problem that they say, just take him among the dead. In other words, leave him to die. And that's a town guilt scenario, right? They had no choice. They're like, we can't fix this. So what we need to do is we're not going to put him to death. That would make us responsible. But if we just put him in the tombs and tell him to go out there in, into the wilderness and he's there, he can die on his own, and we are all good. So what would make you more nervous than anything in the whole world if you as a town realized that I put this man way off, in a town to, or way off in the tombs just to die on his own, basically a death sentence. If you walked up and you'd heard that someone had the power to throw 2,000 spirits into pigs and make them run off of a cliffside and you see them standing next to that man that you all put there and he's dressed, he's clothed, And he's in his right mind. What can a victim do if we give them their humanity back? If we give them their power back? If we give them their right mind back? Ooh, all of a sudden, they can tell the truth. They can say, like, think about this, as these townspeople are going back, they're thinking in their mind, oh boy, what has he told Jesus. Because if that guy had the power to do that, what could he do to us? There is a tremendous amount of fear because the person that was victimized, that was dehumanized, is now clothed and in their right mind. This is what's going on all over the place in our culture right now. We are giving people back their dignity and they're calling stuff out. And there's nothing more fearful for the perpetrators of those acts than the fact that those people are now given power to speak. That's what good news does. So anyway, let's continue. Um, They were afraid. Those who had sent uh, it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region, right? Because they're frightened. Like, please get out of here. Like, we don't want any more trouble. You already did something super political. I don't want to deal with this. Uh, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell the Decapolis, which is a set of cities, uh, how much Jesus had done for him, and the people were amazed. Now, what I find really interesting about this is this is the first person, in the book of Mark anyway, that Jesus actually sends out. And where does he send him to? He does not say, yes, come with me and come proclaim this message to all the world as we're going to be doing, we're going to be traveling around and doing this. He says, go back. Go back to your city, to the people that knew you as this crazy person that, that dehumanized you and remain among them. And here's the only thing he knows about Jesus by, other than the fact that he can heal. It says, and how he had mercy on you. So the only thing required in Jesus's point of view, for him to go back and to minister to those people, to evangelize to those people, is mercy. And it comes up again when Jesus finally sends out the twelve. The twelve are probably sitting there going, "Like this guy, this guy beats us." What? So, but the twelve get sent out early on, and they get sent out in a really unique way. Jesus says, "Don't take anything for your journey. Not even staff. Just walk your way into a village and go be." the guest of someone as you proclaim the good news, which meant you're a guest, not a host. You're at the mercy of the host. You're at the mercy of the host, and only when you're at the mercy of something is there room for grace. Only when you put yourself in the vulnerable position will that grace shine through. Mercy always costs us something. It does in the case of Jesus on the cross. Mercy is this idea that I will extend mercy to you. But when we do that, it's always going to cost us something. But it's a great privilege because when we extend that mercy, we make room for grace. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. We'll just zip this one down to like almost nothing. But basically the Good Samaritan is there's a priest, there's a man who's gotten robbed and he's on the side of the road in a region that would be called the wilderness. And a priest walk by and a Levite, two religious people, and they walk by and they, they look and they pass by. And the reason that they pass by are both for religious reasons and for political reasons and all sorts of things. But if they go and they touch this man, this man is dead, then they become ritually impure and they can't go back into the temple and make their money and do their duty. They can't make their money or do their duty. It would cost them something. And for the Samaritan, and this is something we could all use a whole lot more of, the Samaritan who's an outsider, who they both hate each other, right? These are labels. He's labeled a Samaritan. This is a Jewish man. The Samaritan comes and he takes this person and he goes to an inn. And what does he say to the innkeeper? He says, I want to pay for his stay and anything else that you need, I'll be back and I'll pay for that as well. It costs him something to display grace to this man. That mercy literally costs him something. Whether it's monetary or not, the the Jewish people in this story would have had to sacrifice their ability to enter into the religious stuff of the day, but this one is just, it's going to cost you something if you want to display grace. And If you want to actually leave room for grace, the more mercy we push into the world, the more this place looks like heaven. the more this place actually starts to look and act a little bit more like heaven, the more mercy we extend, the more grace is able to flourish. So what does evangelism look like in 2018 and 2019? I don't think it's yelling at people. I don't think it's trying to argue with people. I think it has to do with mercy. Where are we declaring mercy with people, with organizations, with institutions? And that may cost us something personally. That may cost us good standing with people. It might cost us actual money. It might cost us whatever. But it, like, mercy is the only way forward. And that's displayed by this ultimate act where Jesus literally just lays down his life, the greatest thing you can give away for an act of mercy so that grace might flourish. That's what makes this stuff interesting to me. That's what makes me fired up about the Christian tradition, about Jesus, is the fact that this stuff actually has the power to change what's going on right here, right now. And that we can lean into that. So let's pray. God, thank you. Um, Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the ability to talk about mercy and grace and thanks and how those are powerful tools uh, to help mend the labels that we've given each other and to help us come together in sort of a stronger way. Um, I pray over all of our Thanksgiving experiences. And I, uh, I pray over um, the week to come as we rebuild. Uh, let us be people that act. Amen.